I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Greetings from Stockholm, Bratislava, and New York. My name is Henrik. And I'm David, and you're listening to the Check Your Facts podcast. So, how are you, David? And uh, what's going on in the Balkans? <laughs> you wanted to say Middle Europe, right? No, <laughs> my wife is from Bosnia, so all of those countries are the Balkans for me. Yeah, I guess for the people in the United States, we are still Czechoslovaks and not Slovaks. Uh, but hopefully, <laughs> that's changing. Uh, anyway, nothing's going on like super special here. Uh, how about you? I heard about uh, the new mobile CMS you launched uh, in your newsroom. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. We sure did. Um, it's a light version of our current CMS built as a standalone application based on Google's material design. So editors and reporters can do the most basic stuff with it, such as uh, creating and updating articles and teasers, change order of the teasers on a section page, add tags and images to articles, and so on. So I've just finished educating the newsrooms of Dagens Industri and Dagens Nyheter, and now I just hope they'll start using it. Speaking about mobile CMSs, that's uh, def- uh, definitely the cue for us to introduce our next guest to the podcast, Sasha Koren. Uh, she's the editor at the Guardian's Mobile Innovation Lab in New York City. Uh, hey, Sasha, great to have you here. Hey, Henrik. Hey, David. It's great to be here. And kind of ironic, just a little bit, because we promised to cover journalism outside of the US and UK. And now we're already introducing a guest who works at the UK-based news organization, The Guardian, in New York. <laughs> well, hopefully you can get get all of the um, two countries that you didn't, or the areas that you didn't want to focus on out of the way with me this once, and then you never have to do them again. Yeah. We can't promise that. <laughs> Probably okay. not. But, you know... Um, we are very glad to have you on the podcast. Oh, I'm yes, so glad, glad you could join us. And so, uh, what what are your thoughts on the mobile CMS, Sasha? I'm really excited about um, about what you've done there, and uh, I think that it's really important for editors and reporters to have a closer way of working that better mirrors the way that readers are reading. Um, so I'll be very curious, say in a month or two, to get to hear your thoughts on how maybe that's changing their awareness of what they're publishing and whether it changes anything about um, their perceptions of what users are seeing too. I think all too often you have a mobile CMS or you have a CMS that's only desktop or only uh, that you can only use on a laptop and uh, it's good for speed and it's maybe good for um, just efficiency when you're in the office, but as far as actually really relating to how your content might look when it's picked up by someone who's on their mobile phone, uh, it kind of creates a bit of a barrier. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely report back to you in a month or so when the reporters and editors have really started using it. And my hope is that the editors, when they are out on mission, missions like um, political press conferences and and such that they will 
um, leave the the laptops at home, and you know, instead of of calling an editor in the newsroom to uh, to give him or her some quotes to add to the article, they can just they can just uh, pull the mobile up and and log in to the mobile CMS and add the quote themselves. That's fantastic. Yeah. So they don't have to uh, call in with a sat phone or use methods that are that are were common in the you know 1940s, 1970s, 1990s, 1994 perhaps, 1994. 1994. <laughs> yes, that's when I started. <laughs> yeah. Been around for a while. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. About that, you know, if we yeah. do some, let's check your background. Okay. Sorry, pun intended. <laughs> Haha, um, uh-huh. ha. but um, it, it's it, you. You started out as as an editorial and program assistant at the New York Foundation for the Arts back in 1994. That's right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, um, it was. I mean, 1994. There was an internet, but it wasn't really being commonly used, and um, I think I didn't even have my first email address in that job. And I think I was lucky because I got. It was, uh, they published a small newspaper for um, creative communities within New York State and also uh, gave some funding to arts and education. So I was reporting on a lot of issues that were relevant to sort of government funding and also um, different kinds of facilities for art spaces in in New York. And uh, so I got that good old fashioned skill of sort of you know, cold calling people on the phone and going out and meeting them in person and, you know, s- skills that I think reporters still need and also editing pieces by other people. So, um, but I think that I was also hearing that there was about, you know, much more about the internet and friends of mine worked for companies that produced information on CD-ROM. And so I was really curious, um, which is why after a couple of years I moved to, um, take on a, a job at a technology company, which was a database of music and books and film. Um, it was pre-Amazon, and uh, but would sort of, would have been the, the kinds of databases that would have powered Amazon had Amazon not done it themselves. Um, and they got bought later um, by different kinds of companies and greater acquisitions. But it was really my first my first um, introduction to technology and to the concept of, of databases and what, a, what data could power and how access to information could be spread in a really powerful way. Um, uh, so that ultimately led me to sort of teach myself HTML and um, get a couple of different kinds of freelance jobs, which gave me more technology skills like learning how to transfer files over FTP, which I can't even believe I, I did. Um, I mean, all my technology skills are sort of still like, you know, relevant, but I also feel like they were they were very rudimentary at that point, um, although they seem very complex. And now, um, you know, now I think that you probably wouldn't even ever need to know those kinds of things because there are so many um, tools that kind of can do it for you, like creating a website off HTML isn't really necessary 
that much anymore unless you want to do some very custom, you know, custom work, and in which case you want to know CSS and HTML5, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's what led me to the Times, which was had just published its web started publishing its website in '96, um, and I was there to be a copy editor and to also be a web producer um, on a small arts and culture section that they were producing for the New York region uh, called New York Today, um, and then had a bunch of different roles that were always involved in editorial, like figuring out ways to use new technologies to tell tell stories in the language of that time. Um, and you were there for, was, for like 17 yeah. years, right? Yeah, 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 just almost 17 years, yeah. Wow. Um, I've been saying 16, oh, but then I looked at the dates. Right. It was a long time, yeah, I really grew up there and I got, I got a lot of different kinds of educations there and worked with worked with a lot of different departments, worked with the opinion department, and then worked in the newsroom on um, social media and led the social media and community teams for the last four years that I was there. Um, so then um, I started at The Guardian. Why, why, did you, why did you leave New York Times for The Guardian? Um, I, I think when you're at an organization for a really long time, I loved The New York Times. I, it was it was my home and my community and uh, I think that when you're at an organization for a long time there's certain ways that you get a little bit set in your ways and you start you start sort of thinking in ways that are not fresh even if you have people around you who are thinking in fresh ways that you can sometimes let yourself get a little bit sort of uh, you accept things as normal that in another place you would see as new and maybe or you would approach with fresh eyes and start to challenge and I just knew I needed a change I needed you know it was either stay there for the rest of my career or um, you know sort of set off and uh, it didn't hurt that at the time they were offering buyouts and it was it was financially a good decision to you it's sort of one of the common stories in American journalism these days is you know, rounds of buyouts and layoffs as mm. it probably is in other places in the world. It's same um, in Sweden. How about Slovakia? Yeah. No, no buyouts here actually. Um, you, I mean, I guess you get uh, uh, buyouts. You mean you get uh, uh, paid to leave? In, yeah, paid to leave. Uh, well, not really here because many of the people are like working but freelancing. Mm. And uh, uh, that's why you don't get a buyout. But uh, also, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're working like uh, full time, then you get a buyout. But it's not like a, a big, big money. Hmm. So you you sort of yeah, it sounds like different terms, and it seems like every different country has slightly different labor laws where it comes to journalists and. Um, yeah, I know that in the UK it's quite different too. So, uh, and they have quite a strong labor union. Um, anyway, that's a little bit of an aside into uh, newsroom labor law, which I actually am not an expert in at all. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, so I moved um, to the Guardian. It was a great opportunity. Um, I think mobile is such a sort of. Uh, 
underexplored in some ways um, set of parameters to create journalism within. It's clearly where the audience is and, you know, until the next set of devices comes along, um, this is where this is where the audience is going to be and that we're not yet really fully taking advantage of that fact. Um, so I thought it was a great opportunity to sort of see what I could do with a small team um, to sort of help raise awareness of and help push the boundaries of what we consider to be journalism on mobile. I see. And uh, for the uh, American Guardian, uh, you've got the same editor-in-chief as in the UK? It's, um, it all reports up to Kath Viner, who's, in, who's the editor-in-chief in the UK, but there's a separate editor who runs the newsroom here, Lee Glendening. Um, but we, yeah, so we work really closely with the US newsroom. Um, we also have good relationships with the UK newsroom and are in contact with lots of people there for various reasons, as well as the product and technology teams there too. And we've done some collaborations with them. Uh, okay, actually, I have a question for you, Sasha. Now, uh, your innovation lab is like about all about mobile, and uh, in in the world uh, when talking about internet and mobile, there is also the question. So, is it the future? Is it the apps? Is it the mobile web, or is it the web apps? That's a really that feels like a trick question. I know you don't mean it to be <laughs> because it feels like there's no good answer here. Um, I do think that if I was a small organization looking to capture a larger audience, I would probably not invest in an app, um, mm. a mobile app per se. I might invest in a web app or mobile web, optimizing for mobile web. Um, and the reason I say that is because I think apps are hard to keep people engaged with. Um, they have some great capacity and great features once you're in them. Uh, the fact that you can download for offline reading, um, the fact that you can sort of set some preferences. Um, but I also feel like it's probably a small portion of your actual audience that's going to be fully engaged with that app on a daily basis. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's if I like... was going to make an argument for an app, though, I would say that you know it's a it, you need it's it's good to have an app to sort of keep that keep that audience um, engaged with you in the sense of that you can push them information and pull them back, but um, but I don't think that's the only way. I thought you were going to say. If you need an app, it should be the Guardian Mobile Innovation Lab app. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the one the, app you need. That's the very, that's the only app you should ever need. Actually, I would say that's the one app that you might want uh, if you wanted to see some very strange things on the internet that are not necessarily <laughs> fully um, fully realized for your daily news needs. I I would probably send you somewhere else. Then, yeah, we do have but, an app that we're using as a as a way of. Um, sort of launching new experiments and uh, actually one of our developers is working on a, um, a way to code for that app that will work sort of seamlessly with mobile web. So I'm excited about that. 
Okay, I guess we can talk about some of the experiments you've done in sure. the past year, right? Was it a year mm -hmm. already? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, it's all, it's already been a year. It has. We've been experimenting since, since May, um, but the lab has been sort of up and running. And we had to spend some time staffing up and sort of setting our priorities, but um, we had a team in place by May and we started experimenting that, yeah. So wow, what? Okay. So Henry, go on. I know you had a bunch of questions regarding the in <laughs> innovations and the experiments. Yeah. First, first a, a generally general uh, question about the experiments because, as you said, like if if you have the the mobile app, you're gonna see some some really weird <laughs> experiments on the web. And you know that's that's the thing that amazes me the most with the mobile innovation lab is that um, I read this post back in I think it was it was an article by Neiman lab in August I think when you did an experiment of Chrome notifications mm -hmm. and <laughs> when I started to crunch the numbers because it was like 20% out of this many people so when I started to crunch the the, uh, the numbers it was like hmm, it was 20 people who signed up for this and uh, who signed mm -hmm. up for this and used it and mm -hmm. i mean i didn't consider that a bad thing i was like this is amazing this is amazing that we can do stuff like this because in sweden the the big media houses are are always talking about uh, making money making profit yeah. you know a lot yeah. of innovations aren't done because you don't have a plan, a strategy for making profit. Yeah, I think that's one of the really rare and special things about working in the lab is that we're explicitly not um, addressing monetization. So uh, our job is to figure out what formats might be appealing to users and where um, we might need where there might be more opportunities for newsrooms to take advantage of um, of those formats and to share that information publicly. That's it. And so when we're experimenting, that gives us a really big latitude to sort of be creative about the ways that we're thinking about um, new products. And I think that's really unusual within news organizations looking to launch new services and products is that they're thinking monetization first rather than, or by and large, they're thinking monetization first or monetization as a big piece of it, rather than what's gonna serve our users well. And then, you know, monetization, uh, I would love to think will come next. I know that we don't all have the luxury to operate that way, um, but I, I do think that like you can't sell anything unless you know users are gonna be there, right? So. Um, so if you can prove out something that's going to be really, really appealing, then maybe the monetization comes on top of that. Um, but I also think it's a really, like, the way that we're working, I think, has a lot of promise for news organizations uh, if they do have a couple of people to spare in starting small and doing small experiments that you can learn a lot from. Um, you know, do something that doesn't have a lot of uh, a lot of overhead get a small audience of 2500 a thousand and 
see what you learn from them, send them a survey afterwards and see what they say. And we've been able to really learn a lot both from usage data, but also um, qualitative feedback that we get from users who say, I loved this, but this didn't work for me. Um, and uh, so all of those kinds of signals give us a sense of where the where the next experiment can maybe do better and what we can hone to sort of figure out uh, where those opportunities are. Well, it sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's really, I have to say it's really fun and Knockwood, you know, more opportunities for more journalists will come along like this because I think they're really, they're really interesting and freeing and, and will ultimately, you know, if we were if we were not working on a grant that was industry focused and just working on behalf of the Guardian, I think we would be able to say to um, to say to our, you know, the the manage, senior management at the Guardian, like, here's what here's a really great opportunity because we saw like, you know, eighty percent engagement off a thousand people. That's extraordinary, you know, or eighty percent engagement off any number of people, but. Um, you know, just if there's 80% engagement that at, with a thousand people, even if that goes down to 60, that's still great. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, sorry, Henrik. Uh, I, I was just like uh, wondering, like most of your, your experiments uh, were concerning uh, notifications, right? They have been up until now. And um, we started my I co-lead the lab with um, a product manager whose name is Sarah Schmalbach. And she and I, when we first started, we sat down and, and tried to figure out, well, where do we think there's a lot of opportunity and where our experiments could be useful? And what are kinds of areas of technology and um, uh, what are the kinds of formats that news organizations and newsrooms are not yet taking advantage of? And one of them, one of the big ones was notifications. Um, we also felt like live coverage needed needed some rethinking that most live coverage of events and breaking news was done in a way that was very much um, built for desktop, which was a live blog. And that, that doesn't work so well on, um, that doesn't work so well on a mobile device. Hmm. So where could we, you know, where could we make innovations um, on that? But we started with notifications and experimenting really heavily too with Chrome web notifications because it didn't require an app. We didn't have an app at that point. Um, so they were easy to, easy to use um, and easy to get, um, easy to get going. Mm -hmm. And we did start small. I think our first experiment, we probably did have only about 20 people, maybe <laughs> more. I'm, I'm not remembering accurately, but I'll trust you on that number. Um, but yeah, we did smart start very, very small and then built up over time until uh, for the US election, we did a notifications, big notifications experiment with, um, with the help of the UK apps teams. We built into the Guardian apps um, a way of getting data on the poll results. So, um, you know, we had an autom one automated alert that would update with the latest results every time, uh, every time the new ones came in from the AP, the Associated Press, mm -hmm. which is the main organization that reports 
poll results in the U.S. Yeah, um, and and also the the uh, um, inauguration when we could watch yeah. a live stream um, on a lock screen. That was, you know, yeah, I was kind of mind blown because I had never <laughs> even thought about it. Yeah, it's uh, actually, that's really. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, sorry. I just wanted like um, this. This is the first time anyone has done that, right? Uh, like live video in notifications. First time that we know of. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I think, I think Mike, uh, the 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 US uh, publication Mike.com, they have already done. They have pushed uh, video into notifications, right? That was like yeah, sometime last year. Yeah, they have. They've um, they've started so. When iOS 10 launched in late September, I think, they added the capacity to have um, video and photos within a notification, um, and so and GIFs. So I think that uh, Mike was the first to really take advantage of that and make a big splash on that. Um, but. Live video just seemed like it was a it was a really good opportunity to explore and for something like an inauguration, which has a very sort of predictable set of events going on um, for the most part, that it would be something fairly easy for us to do. So we explored it again with the help of uh, a lot of different people from The Guardian, actually, from the video teams and from the apps teams in the UK, and we were able to get a live stream into a notification um, so hopefully other people will sort of see the advantage of that and see the the interest in that and follow on and maybe steal that steal that work so not steal it but you know take it on and be inspired by it borrow it borrow it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you know um, um, as you said like the users are very interested in notifications and these kind of experiments another thing you know um, in these post election days everyone is still talking about fake news and filter bubbles and the Guardian has launched this burst your bubble um, and I, I don't know if you have had time to check it out but actually this mm -hmm. week uh, Nick Lums um, uh, new crowdfunded app Read Across the Isle were launched. I haven't seen it, but I've seen mention of it, and I'm really interested in it. Yeah, um, it's kind of a it's a pretty cool initiative. I have to say that um, I backed it. Um, uh -huh. So and I, I downloaded the app when it was released. I'm not I'm not that impressed yet but i think there's a lot of potential it's a kickstarter project yeah is that right exactly kickstarter yeah. project so it was um it was funded it was fully funded this week and i th i think it was like uh, monday it was released to the public the the app you know i, I mean it's it's free for everyone to to download so you can just download it in in That's the app right. store um, can you just repeat the name so that people can <laughs> yeah if they didn't get it the first time yeah the app is called read across the aisle uh, so it's in uh, i s l e no it's in a um i s l e so oh. uh, the the app is about like they have these sources like uh wall street journal 
and uh, Fox News, which are Republican sources. And then they have um, Democrat sources, so to speak, like the Huffington Post and etc. And then you have this gauge, uh, which is uh, on one end it's blue, and then it gets lighter blue, and then it gets light red, and then red in the other end. So when you are reading articles, this gauge uh, shifts depending on uh, what kind of sources you are reading. So if you're reading a lot of Republican sources, you will end up on you know the far right of of the gauge of the bar, so to speak. Hmm. It sounds like a really effective way of sort of making you realize sort of the the potential bias of what you're reading. Yeah, I have I have never even thought about, you know, I I don't really consider American uh news outlets as either Republican or Democrat except for like Fox News because people are always making jokes about it. Um but you know, I wasn't aware of the fact that Huffington Post is kind of very liberal. Uh, democratic, so to speak. Yeah, I think it is more so now. I mean, I think this is a, such a big topic of conversation within U.S. journalism circles because I don't think that, you know, most news organizations, most U.S. news organizations necessarily identify as one thing or the other. But with this election, a couple of really significant things happened. One was we had a candidate who was sort of openly openly discrediting news organizations that pride themselves on careful and ethically reported and ethically edited journalism, um, calling them fake and liars and et cetera, et cetera. And that's only continued as he's been president. And so that creates a big challenge and also maybe, you know, the perceptions of, of what, uh, as the phrase goes, mainstream media is within certain parts of the country is that um, is is that it is biased and that it isn't taking into concern the sort of way that many people within the population think and live their lives. And I think that's a huge challenge for or a huge set of challenges for organizations to confront. I don't even know what mainstream media is. And, and I say this having worked at an organization <laughs> that considers itself, you know, a general interest publication. It mm. wants a very broad readership. I think the hope was, and the, and the assumption has been, if we create journalism in the best and most professional way we know how, readers will appreciate it and readers will come. And that's that, in retrospect, is a bit of a luxury. So now I think... Um, New people who are interested in news and people who are interested in the way news is read now, especially with the rise of Facebook, which has been so effective of, at sort of like filtering people's experience of news uh, in particular ways, whether or not it's by credible sources or not, um, is is to burst, you know, to, to sort of get out of this thinking of like if we create news just in the way we always have, then it will be read. I think journalism is, as a, or US journalism is sort of realizing we need to do more to connect with potential or potential audiences. And I think that's a positive thing. I think it was, it's, it was a hard 
reason to have to learn it. Um, but it's something that I've sort of believed in for, for a long time, and it's nice to see it sort of coming to fruition, even if in this hard way. Um, sorry, I'm talking so much about US media here in your <laughs> European-centered podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it doesn't matter. But... Uh, let's just maybe get back to your like, uh, what's what are what are your plans for like the future? Yeah, um, we right now. So we we're experimenting so much with notifications, and um, we're going to continue that. But we're also adding into that, uh, as I mentioned, the consideration of live news and sort of looking at how to present different kinds of live news experiences to mobile readers in ways that might make the stories easier to understand or make the threads easier to um, the threads easier to sort of follow like you know if you have we did one small experiment um, for the inauguration and then another for the Super Bowl here in the US the big the big American football um, championship uh, where it's they we took different parts of the story and put them in different panes. So you could swipe back and forth between the panes. Um, for the Super Bowl, it was, and that, that experiment is still up. I can send you a link. Um, yeah, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you after. Um, but you could see what was going on for the official game and then what was happening with the halftime show, which was Lady Gaga and also for the advertisements, which were quite a pretty big deal in the US. A lot of companies release their new ad campaigns for the Super Bowl, or do you think clever things, or do things that are very impactful. Um, so it was basically everything that was going on on the field, and then everything that was not sports. Because um, you also get a, a, quite a number of people who are interested in sports, but don't really care about the halftime show or the ads and vice versa. You get people who really like, really want to see Lady Gaga but don't care about football. Um, so, uh, so that's one thing we're, we're trying out. And then we're also going to look more into video and what we can push there. Um, mm -hmm. And a couple of the two other areas of focus that we're, we're starting to sort of think about how to stand up as exp in an experimental way are something that we call contextual delivery. So hmm. meaning, you know, it, taking advantage of the sensors and um, the related sets of permissions that are embedded in devices, okay. such as location or um, access to your um, contacts, which is a very sensitive one, but could have sort some of. advantage. <laughs> um, to sort of deliver you a better news experience. So, you know, if we know that you are commuting between 7 a.m. and 7.30, um, that we can create a little package for you, you know, of off, for offline reading or audio consumption. Or if we know that you have just landed um, uh, in the London airport um, and you need... Uh, the schedule of the next train into London um, or you would like sort of an update of what has recently happened in London that you know might be of interest to you or of sort of arts and culture experiences that you might want to 
take advantage of while you're there. What about um, VR and AR? VR and AR we're not working on. Only uh, we made a pretty conscious choice before we started, or at, when we started, to not take those on. One, because we felt like they took a lot of expertise and a lot of um, a lot of uh, financial capital to sort of play around with. And two, because um, the audience isn't there in in mass numbers yet. Yeah. It's not, and, it's not um, something that you're going to pick up every day. And, and maybe also, so that, like, the Guardian already has or is building a VR lab in the UK, yeah. right? It's, they do it's, have it's headed VR by staff. Francesca Panetta, right? That's exactly, exactly it, yeah. And so uh, I do think it's important for for news organizations to experiment to the extent that they can, or for journalism to have a presence in the VR landscape. So I think it's really interesting and it's only gonna develop and get more, the equipment's gonna get cheaper and it's gonna get more frequent. Um, but I think it's a whole other set of challenges um, than we're seeing right now and the day-to-day -day consumption of news is still is still within the, within the small device and looking at it sort of while you're while you're walking around or while you're sort of conscious of other, you know, it's not as, as fully immersive. So that's where we're focusing for now. That sounds very interesting. And since it's already past noon in New York right now when it we're is? recording this, yeah. So I guess that you're sort of craving for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. Yeah, I'm starting to think of the options. Yeah. And, it's not gonna uh, be pizza today, I'm sorry to say. Oh. Always sorry to say that it won't be pizza. I love well, pizza. Well, if you come visit New York, I'll, I will take you all to pizza. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We will take you up on that someday. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if if we will be allowed to enter the country. Of uh, <laughs> that maybe that might be another hour-long conversation. Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> <in> more. <laughs> So, David, um, would you do the honor of asking the very last question to Sasha? Uh, yes, actually, I have a, 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 maybe a, to sum it all up. Um, so, you publish everything you do in your experiments. Will there be like a comprehensive um, study or something uh, you will put out after all this ends, or, or will be there? some stats for people or some like best practices to draw on for other organizations? Yeah, absolutely. We're working on a couple of things and one is sort of ways of making what we've learned, um, distilling them into sort of more uh, actionable insights. Um, so we're looking to potentially publish some sort of specific recommendations and documentation. Um, one of the one of the uh, requirements of of the lab from the grant was that we work in the open, which is a very very much in line with the Guardian philosophy, uh, and to make things open source. And so I was really excited about it when I started, and then I realized how hard it is actually to do. And so you know, there to sort of make to make things useful to people in ways that they can. Um, they can learn from, but also maybe take into their organizations is actually when you're doing sort of very specialized um, experiments that are not taking into account monetization, 
particularly to make some to make that impact and to make the sort of possibilities known uh, isn't isn't as easy as I thought it would be. And then sort of um, doing that while you're actively experimenting. So we're still we're, we want to make it we want to make it sort of easier and uh, what we produce to be um, usable by other organizations. And then we're also working with the Tau Center for Digital Journalism, which is here in New York at Columbia University. Uh, and they have a research group that we're working on a couple of different topics um, that we will sort of have produce a body of research with them um, later this year. Uh, and hopefully the grant lasts through the end of the year and hopefully at the end of the year we will sort of be able to sort of wrap it up with um, by producing a, a big study um, that we'll probably release with Tau that we'll be able to say this is where we are with mobile journalism in 2017. That's amazing. You know, it's well, thank yeah, you. Yeah. It's it's very nice that you are pioneering here with the mobile innovation lab. And uh, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun and I hope it will be and I hope we can I hope we can be useful to people too. Oh, you already are. Oh, good. Extremely helpful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I love reading those blogs and then just going to my editors and saying, oh, we should do more with this, you know, with these notifications. Maybe that's a, something we can explore furthermore. Just look at The Guardian, what they are doing. Ah, and yeah. well, that's great to works. hear. That's great to hear. I'm really happy that I'm really happy that those conversations are happening and that, you know, we've had a hand in helping people think forward. Yeah. And we are very happy that you wanted to talk about it with us in the Check Your Facts podcast. So, it was a yes, pleasure. very happy. Thank you for uh, being with us. Yeah, you're because, so welcome. Thanks. I guess that's it for today, David. Yes, definitely. Big thanks to Sasha. I mean, I would clap, but that wouldn't be great for the listeners. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you're curious about the Mobile Innovation Lab, you should visit the official blog at medium.com. And you should also download the Mobile Innovation Lab app on iOS and Android. It's the only app you need, according to Sasha. <laughs> yeah, just type Maybe in. Maybe one or two others. Just look for the Guardian Mobile Innovation Lab. And uh, yeah, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you find us. Uh, I'm, our website is uh, checkyourfacts.eu. Uh, that's EU like European Union. Yeah, that thing Donald Trump says he will take apart. And <laughs> hopefully not. <laughs> Yeah, and you should also subscribe to our newsletter because our goal is to blog about new episodes and the making of this podcast and some useful tips and tools. So, see you next time and until then, and until then just don't forget to always check your facts. Big thanks to Sasha Koran from the Guardian Mobile Innovation Lab. Yeah, Sasha. big thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Bye. Oof. Hey, that's a wrap.